There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone, and welcome to Not What You Thought You Knew, a brand new podcast series from History. I'm your host, Dr. Fern Riddell, and in this episode, we're going back to the year 1545. Henry VIII is king, married to his sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr, and off the coast of Portsmouth, with July wind in their sails, lies a gigantic French fleet. 150 warships, 25 war galleys and over 30,000 troops have been brought to the Solent. Their mission? To capture Portsmouth and conquer England. From the battlements of South Sea Castle, King Henry stands watching as his tiny naval defence force, only 80 ships, faces down this invading fleet. Leading the defence of England is the huge, imposing British warship, the Mary Rose. With almost 100 guns, over 200 sailors and nearly 200 soldiers on board, the Mary Rose was an incredibly imposing sight. But this was to be her last fight. And before the battle had even really got underway, King Henry was brought terrible news. His famous warship had been sunk, blown over by an unexpected gust of wind and pulled under by the water that flooded into her open gun ports. We may never know the circumstances that led to the sinking of this magnificent ship. Rumours from the British sailors and battle commanders blamed an insubordinate crew, poor sailing, negligence or just pure dumb luck. The French, of course, claimed it as a victory for their own guns. But one thing is sure. Ever since her rediscovery and raising from the sea floor in 1982, the Mary Rose has captivated us. Now, here on Not What You Thought You Knew, we are going to bring you the latest research, the most exciting stories, and all the things you were never taught about in school. And what better way to do that than to start our very first episode with the latest research from the wreck of the Mary Rose. Later on in this episode, we'll hear that while the study helps to paint a new picture of the historic population of southern port towns, this wasn't unique. Tudor England was as diverse inland as it was on sea. But before we get to that, first up, I'm really excited to be speaking to a marine archaeologist. And yes, she is as hardcore as she sounds. We'll find out what it's like to dive on a shipwreck and about some of the many finds the Mary Rose has given up from its watery grave.
Joining me today is Dr. Alex Hildred, and she's Head of Research and the Curator of Ordnance and Human Remains at the Mary Rose Trust. Director of the site of the Mary Rose itself, she began as an archaeological diver in 1979 and has researched and published on the many weapons of the ship, as well as working with the Royal Armouries, manufacturing and firing full-scale copies of the guns recovered. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. And that is an incredible relationship to this site. It is. It's like growing up on it and getting old all at the same time. (laughs) I mean, can you explain to our listeners what an archaeological diver does? Because I think it's something that I've, I've never imagined what that life and that career must be like. Well, for a start, you have to realize that you're actually destroying the site once you start to excavate it. So you you go to a barren seabed, if you like, with one timber poking out, and then you follow it along, and then you tag them all because you don't know what relationship they are. And gradually, you dig through the layers of time and expose an archaeological site like you would on land. And I think the, the big thing about the Mary Rose is that it was... it. We decided in 1979 to completely expose the whole site. It was found in 1971, but only a few timbers. And so it was decided that if we wanted to understand the site, like, you know, what what it it meant, you really had to expose it layer by layer and get down to a a deck which had, you know, guns going through ports in the side of the ship. So you were looking at trying to dig it down in in layers of time in order to peel it right back to the Tudor levels because we we got half a ship because the ship sank on one side and the top eroded down to seabed level. And so we were looking at a ship on its side and digging through the modern layers that build up over it, just like you do on a land site, to the Tudor layers. And so it's just a huge amount of recording, trying to understand how complete it is, what objects are next to what and what relationship they have, and then realize that the whole thing's on its side as well. So it's really a bit of a, a huge journey into investigation. And it's a bit like being a forensic time detective, if you like. It sounds it. And that is an incredible thing to experience. I mean... It's still an active site today, isn't it, for archaeological exploration? Yes, we still have to monitor it because it's it's actually one of the 70 or so protected wreck sites around British Isles. Um, and it is in you know, a, a shipping lane, if you like. It's very close to a big channel. So we monitor it because we know that in 2005, when we last did any active um, excavation, that we actually found a portion of the missing side of the ship that had obviously fallen off at some stage in the destruction of the site, or perhaps even in the Battle of the Solent that caused the ship to sink in 1545. We don't know. Um, and so we reburied that. So in fact, even more than ever now, we have to realize that, that it, it is still an active site and it's just a case of really getting the finance in order to, to go down and perhaps do further excavation. So that's something that for the future that we've just safeguarded by bearing it very, very well. But we're actually due to go out with the Ministry of Defense to do some more survey to actually remotely look to see whether there's, be, there's been any movement of sediments uh, around the site since we left it in 2005. So it is still an active archaeological site and one that I hope future archaeologists will will get as much excitement and information from as we do. That's fascinating. I mean, are there any dangers that come with working on the site like this that's so deeply underwater? Well, Merrose isn't actually too deep. It's only, um, well, 12 metres to the seabed. And if you're in the very, very bottom of the hole that, that we excavated to lift the Merrose, which is all done by hand with us using airlifts, which are like 
I suppose you could say they're like underwater vacuum cleaners, but they take the spoil away as we expose things. Um, so it's not as though depth is a huge problem. It's actually a very good depth of working depth. You've got maybe 96 minutes on one tide run and, and um, about 50 on another because uh, you get different depths as water goes up and down with high tide and low tide, etc. So the depth isn't too bad, but you're, you're actually quite close to shipping lanes and the Solent is really, really busy. But um, it's not as though you're, you're doing hugely deep water archaeology, which comes with its own suite of, of physiological problems uh, with greater depth. But what you have got is terrible visibility because it's all churned up. You've got all these rivers distributing stuff into the, into the Solent and that lands of silt, which is what preserved the timbers of the ship, this wonderful silt that's just like cold cream. <laughs> but that comes, visibility comes with its own problems and tides, which can pick up quite quickly. So, so dive safety was always, always paramount on the site. Is there any change to diving it in 1979 when you started as a graduate to diving it today? Uh, Well, quite a lot, really. But I mean, fundamentally, I think the biggest change was uh, when we were all diving in 1979, everybody was wearing wetsuits. And it's quite cold and solent. But uh, so the change to dry suits in, in 1980 and 81 was a huge, huge uh, alteration. And that, that meant that we could stay longer in the water. So you could, if somebody who'd get cold after half an hour could now stay an hour, maybe even up to the hour and a half without getting too cold. So that was a really big change. And now you might extend the bottom time by, by using uh, a mixture of gases rather than just straight air. But we dived um, entirely on air during the excavation of the Mary Rose, and we had a very good safety record regarding that. I mean, the Mary Rose as a site really is one that's a huge part of our cultural memory. I certainly grew up with images of it being raised and how important it is as an archaeological site and also as a moment and an event in our history. But one of the things that's so fascinating is today and the research that you're doing now, and the subject of that is now the many faces of Tudor Britain. Yep, that's that's right. What we're doing is we're looking when when we decided to or suddenly had funding through Heritage Lottery to display the ship and a, a museum around it rather than what we had done in 1982 when we brought the ship up, we put it into a dry dock inside Portsmouth uh, Naval Base and built basically a canopy over it. So that was a visitor attraction from um, 1983. And then in 1984, we opened a small museum close to the entrance to the dockyard. So the two were were wide apart from one another. So in 2013, when we finally had Heritage Lottery money and could open a museum, uh, we wanted to make a completely different form of display and actually make it around the characters that we found within the, the people on the ship because one important thing about the Mary Rose is you could swim down the decks and see a cabin that belonged to carpenters because it was full of carpentry materials or an area that you think belonged to the surgeon because it was full of a chest with surgical implements and so there were people also we, we excavated the remains of 179 individuals so for us we could see the spaces and we could see the remains of people, the skeletons within those spaces, and we could see some of them that were wearing clothes and and absolutely um, must be certain people, like an archer with a quiver of arrows um, by his side and and with a longbow. So we knew that that person must have been an archer. So, So we knew we had people and we hadn't ever been able to have either the space or 
uh, or the money financially to be able to explore that. So we made a change in 2013 and decided to look at the the, the skeletons that had um, equipment beside them or within certain places that we could actually identify as members of the crew. So we came up with eight individuals, which included carpenter, cook, purser, archers, um, uh, various at the surgeon, but we didn't have a body for the surgeon, but we did have a cabin. And so officers, gentlemen, etc., which were either the chests they were found with or the objects they were found with or the places they were found in. And that sort of dictates a lot of the way the, the museum, so they sort of lead you through. We're trying to make the ship come as much alive to people who go and visit it now as it was to us during the excavation. Human remains is a really important part of the assemblage, and that's what we've sort of started to do really in a big way since 2013 or since the preparation for the 2013 opening of the new museum. Some people struggle with the idea of human remains on display, but I think one of the things that you've done so incredibly well with the Mary Rose and with the museum is to show these people as they were. And what's so fascinating about the new exhibition, which is where you've got eight bodies that you've followed, eight people, is that you've uncovered something that really has changed many people's understanding of Tudor England at this time. And that is that you've got this incredible new DNA analysis of who these people were. Uh, Well, it started really with, we knew that there there were foreigners uh, within Henry's crew. And in fact, Mary Rose had had um, a foreign pilot at various stages and and a foreign surgeon at various stages. But what we didn't know is that the bones, if you like, of some of our most important characters were actually um, foreign. And this was done based on both isotopic work. So that's a type of a different form of an element that can inform you about diet during childhood or location of birth during childhood and also DNA. I think one what's so interesting about this new analysis and and this idea of foreign people in the crew is that you found two identities who were very clearly African. Well, there were two. There, there was one skull that appeared in a study. What what we've been trying to learn a lot about these people, as I say, since since the beginning of that uh, the museum working for the museum. But one of the routes that we took was was trying to look for differences in in different types of bone in order to see whether people were were doing certain things like practicing archery and so we started scanning the skeletons and that led to looking at photogrammetry a series of pictures to see whether you could uh, again get something like a scan and get a printout so you you make basically a a fake copy of things by both scanning and uh, then photogrammetry you can basically send a picture around the world and we did a trial with some osteoarchaeologists with 10 skulls and to see whether the printout skulls, so the fake skulls that were produced, were as good in order to undertake osteological analysis, scientific osteological analysis, as um, the real ones. And out of the 10 skulls, the four osteoarchaeologists picked out one as saying, this person looks as though it's of African ancestry. And that's where the decision, okay, let's, let's let's really try and test this by doing both the isotope analysis, DNA, on this individual to try and, and work out whether that was the case. A second individual came when we decided to then do all the rest of the isotope analysis on the rest of the characters, if you like, the, the eight. Um, we found out that another one uh, was also foreign based on, on the oxygen value about where, you know, where they lived in far warmer climates, if you like, than, than England. So the uh, DNA was done on Henry, who was the first 
chap that, that came out as a result of these this station, this um, looking at the at the ten skulls, which are, which can be seen on this uh, website, Virtual Tutors, and um, and then we also found out that he was probably second generation North African based on the DNA, um, and our Archer Royal, who was the uh, the one who came up with the highest oxygen level was probably also from North Africa. So out of the eight, you know, we had two that were clearly um, of African, either African lived born there or of African descent with an African father and probably an African mother in, in the case of Henry. Well, this is absolutely mind-blowing, I think, for people to, to realise that you have these two very clear African identities found serving on the Mary Rose. On the one hand, you have this incredible archer who's found with a longbow and wrist strap, which has the arms of England and Catherine of Aragon on it. Yes, I mean, that, again, was uh, completely, you know, you don't necessarily expect that because you think of, of England's archers as being predominantly English, you know, you wouldn't expect somebody from North Africa to have actually, and that's the one that, that came out with the oxygen level as being definitely not not born in England, and and more than because we we came out with a range of people within our eight. So there's one that perhaps was from Spain, and one that was from um, uh, Italy. But this oxygen level was so much higher that it was obviously somebody like somewhere like North Africa, which is the most obvious place for to to get that higher level where you know that there was a movement of people across from North Africa to Spain to England and etc. So um, finding the risk guard was was really because that was one of the risk guards that was actually on his arm. He was he was an individual who'd sort of fallen into a space when when uh, the ship went over and a gun came sort of up off the deck to the to the deck above and it created a space that he fell into with a whole load of iron shot actually and so his skull was damaged so you couldn't see any traits that were unusual within the skull um but when when we did the oxygen isotope analysis it, came, it was way off the uh the radar for anywhere within really europe so north africa is the you know most obvious place and when the genetics came back on henry suggesting that he was of second generation um probably Berber, um, Algerian tribes, um, you know, this was an obvious route. So, yes, not only do we have somebody who's North African, but somebody who's in a, you know, possibly one of the king's closest bodyguards. And we think that it might be one of the two archers that uh, perhaps the captain had to supply to the king as he was uh, part of his inner special bodyguard called the King's Spears. I'm sorry, Alex. That's just absolutely incredible. So you have this, you have this archer, and as you said, we have this perception that English archers were the creme de la creme. We talk about them, and people's idea is that these are white British. And you have here on the Mary Rose someone who was a member of the King's bodyguard, potentially, who was clearly at who would have been a very important member of the armed forces and someone whose status on the ship would have been very high, who has this incredibly traumatic and violent death that you're describing. I mean, this is someone who is serving king and country in this moment in time. Uh, yes, I mean, as were really all of them, everybody on the ship, from the mariners to the cooks to the captain himself, were, were basically the king's men on, on the king's ship. Let's talk a little about Henry. As One of the reasons why we were so fascinated to talk to you today is was reading about Henry and his discovery. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Well, Henry was found in the hold of the ship, so that's the very bottom of the ship towards the bow. So actually it was in the 
the first area that we have structurally of the ship because she's missing part of her bow castle. And he was there with the remains of three other men. He was younger than all of them. He was, you know, perhaps about 18. You know, it spans between 16 and then 22. Some of his long bones had still not fused, so that's an indication. And some of his teeth, one of his teeth had still not erupted, his, his um, wisdom teeth. So um, he was there with three other, three other individuals amongst barrels of pitch and tar. So that's for waterproofing the ship, making sure that, that the decks, any deck that's open to the weather, uh, the seams between the deck planks are basically you put all sorts of things, perhaps horsehair, perhaps old rope in bits, and then you seal it with pitch and tar. And so that is the most likely job that he would have undertaken having been found in that space uh, with all of these, with, with these other individuals and with the barrels of tar. Uh, however, just above him on the deck above was one of these wrist guards, was a second wrist guard with the arms of, of England. So, you know, there is a possibility that, that the, the skeleton actually fell into the, the deck below because as the ship eroded on one, it was on one side, the, because it was on one side, the, uh, the, the differences between the deck are very slight. It's only a position because it gets eroded away. Things can move a bit. So um, we can't say for sure. But anyway, there was a wrist guard close by him as well. But, uh... And the other thing that's so amazing about Henry oh, is that he, you believe, actually is someone who was second generation British and mixed race. Yeah, that's right. We think, well, we're not sure whether he was mixed race because when you, you can, when you get the, the two types of DNA, there's a mitochondrial DNA, which is outside of the nucleus, if you like, and there are lots of pairs of that. It's much easier to get, but that's inherited only from the mother. And then there's a nuclear DNA, which is inside the nucleus, which basically tells you your, your, your ancestry through both parents, but also your father's, which it doesn't include, it isn't found in the mitochondrial DNA. Well, the, the mitochondrial DNA, the, the sort of groups of genetic features within that, it's quite a small cluster. It's sort of like blood groups, but they're sort of groups of genes called haplogroups. And his is one that occurs in a small amounts in Europe, but it's more prevalent in North Africa. So his mother could have been European, but could have been North African. But his father is definitely, was definitely that, you know, that the, the genetic fingerprint is of these Mozabite tribes in, in um, Algeria. So he was certainly born in England, and we can tell that because his isotope analysis, the, the oxygen levels are very similar to uh, to all of the others who are English on the crew, and it's right within the the temperate, you know, the, the sort of temperate climate of Britain. Um, whereas uh, his his father was was obviously from North Africa, so he's a second generation, if you like. And I mean, this really changes people's perception of what Tudor England was like. I think it does. I mean, authors and historians have been, you know, saying for a long time that, that actually it, England was far more diverse than than we think, and more diverse in the fact that they were there were quite a number of Africans within it, and many people have seen uh, images of the supposedly the first African in England, which is in the Westminster tournament role, which shows a trumpeter, a black trumpeter at the court of Henry VIII. In fact, it was, he was at the court of Henry VII. And we know that Catherine of Aragon bought uh, a woman with her, possibly a servant called Catalina. And there are evidence within um, parish records of uh, the births of people who are, who are undoubtedly African. But you know, there's one thing to to do it hist historically and have historians saying this and reading it, and then another to actually prove it chemically. It sort of adds another realism to it. So I think we're we're only 
adding the, the flesh, if you like, to, to the historical sources that if you look carefully, you can find evidence of it. But to actually find um, that within a ship in the service of the king, you know, that's, that, again, is making it you know, quite an important stamp on, on how diverse England was. I think that's absolutely eye-opening. Thank you so much, Alex, for talking to us today. Dr. Alex Hildred there, the aquatic Indiana Jones. Not all archaeologists wear woolly jumpers and carry trowels. Some stick on scuba gear and dive the cold, rough, murky depths of the sea. So now we know more about the diverse crew on the Mary Rose, I want to know about the lives of black British Tudors across the UK. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Joining me now is Dr. Nyanka Nubia, author of the hugely successful 2013 book, Blackamoors, Africans in Tudor England. He is a writer, law lecturer and historian, and his work documents the lives and histories of the African experience in Britain, exploring cultural identity, resistance to oppression and the will to succeed. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Nubia. Hello. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit more about your book, Blackamoors? OK, well, um, I wrote a book uh, in 2013 um, called Blackamoors, uh, Africans, uh, uh, their present status and origins in, in Tudor England. And it's the culmination of, at that point, about 26 years of research into the African presence in Tudor England. Now, Tudor England is the period from 1485 to 1603. I spent about two decades and a half going around parish records uh, finding uh, Africans in parishes and towns and cities throughout England during that period. And this is a remarkable um, uh, part of research because it's a period of time in which people don't generally think that there was diversity in England. So uh, my research was groundbreaking in the sense that I was proving without a doubt that people of African descent and other people uh, who, who may be classified as not white or not English or not Christian were also present in England. Um, hitherto, it had been thought that England uh, during this period was monolithically white and monolithically Christian. Um, but that's actually been 
proved to be untrue now through my research and the work of a few others. I mean, I think this is one of the things we really need to push in our culture is the recognition that the past was an incredibly diverse place in England at this time, that it was not monolithically white. I, I think that our perceptions or ideas of English history is often shaped by a Victorian perspective. As a Victorian perspective, looking back and looking to imagine England the way that they would have wanted it to be, not the way that it actually was. And also, unfortunately, our ideas about the past is shaped by film and TV. And in films and TV created in the 60s, 70s, even much so now, like the Tudors, uh, they are devoid of color inverted commas despite being in color and so you tend to you don't tend to see people of color in those shows and if they are um, uh, um, portrayed in those films and tvs people then scream political correctness uh, uh you know political correctness gone mad etc and that tends to make filmmakers step back because often the people that they do include don't quite fit into the narrative and they seem to have been inserted sort of wrongly. Whereas what my research did is proved and showed actual people and not imaginary people, not people inserted just for the sake um, of a political perspective, but actual real people living in London, living in Holting, Worcestershire, living in Bristol, living in Leicester and Nottingham and Derby and, and Barnstable and, uh, and Exeter and places like that. And so throughout the country, from north to south, and including Scotland, and including Wales, and including Ireland, um, we find an African presence here. Uh, and it's a wonderful and fantastic discovery. It really is. And I think this idea about the Victorians looking back, it it's how history gets written and who is, because we know Victorian Britain was just as diverse ethnically as Certainly. any other point in period in history at this time. And so it's about who has been writing our history and how much that needs to change. Yes, it, it, it's, it's about actually also giving life to people who peopled this island. Um, giving life to the diversity of the people that peopled this island. For example, Mary Phyllis of Morosco was 20 years old when she was baptized in St. Bitolf without Orgay in 1587. Uh, she arrived in this country when she was about seven or eight with her father called Phyllis of Morosco. Some suggest that she came from Morocco. I actually believe from my research that she actually came from the Iberian Peninsula wow. and was part of the diverse African population that also populated the Iberian Peninsula or modern day Spain. She was baptized in London uh, in 1587 and she went on to live uh, in England uh, a long life. Now, She's one of a number of people, such as Deirdre Joanqua, uh, a West African prince who was baptized here in 1610-1611. Uh, Christopher Capabet, who was baptized here in, in the 1580s. There was a, an African called Fortunatus, who was a servant of uh, Robert Cecil. And he was baptized here in the 1590s, 1600s. These are really incredible, incredible people that you're finding. Yeah. And what your research showcases is that yeah. these are people who are skilled artisans, they had professions, they had trades, and yeah. their their place, their status in British society was not held back. Or Yes. The important thing is that England didn't develop a racial perspective at this time. That doesn't mean that there wasn't prejudice against people um, of various religions, etc. But what it meant was that England didn't develop a racial idea, a racial perspective that 
inherently and automatically discriminated against them because of the color of their skin. So that meant that color wasn't necessarily the prime uh, issue as regards otherness. Uh, perhaps place of birth may have been, perhaps religion may have been. So this enabled people of African descent to navigate their way through English society, integrate, and in some cases assimilate within English society. For example, there's a person called Henry Anthony Jetto. Henry Anthony Jetto was uh, baptized in Holt in Worcestershire, a rural part of England. And he, he um, uh, after being baptized, was initially a servant to a Henry Bromley, then became his gardener, then afterwards actually became a free man, and then became a yeoman, own, owning his own land and being entitled to vote and sit um, uh, as a juror uh, during court cases. He got married and had six children uh, and a seventh child out of uh, wedlock called John Cuthbert. Uh, these seven children then went on to have about 30 or 40 uh, grandchildren uh, and then uh, to continue to multiply in Holt Worcestershire, which means that in Holt Worcestershire, a large number of the people in Holt Worcestershire are actually directly related to Henry Anthony, Henry Anthony Jetto. I met one of them called um, uh, Peter Bluck, uh, who has Henry Anthony Jetto on both sides of his family tree. Uh, and yet, if you um, met him, uh, he doesn't look like me. He doesn't look like somebody who's a, a visible minority, but he still has that African ancestry in his past. And there's a lot of people in England who have a similar kind of ancestry, actually dating back to people of African descent who were integrated and assimilated within English society. That's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I have grown up white British, but I cannot trace my heritage back further than three generations to England. And to know that we have people here in this country who have African ancestry that goes back to the Tudor period in the UK is incredibly important. It is. Thank you so much, Dr Nubia, for joining us today. This July marks 474 years since the Mary Rose sank. There were only 34 survivors and over 400 lives were believed to be lost. Among them, we now know the 18-year-old Henry, a man who is second-generation black British, and shows us that by using science and history together, we can uncover a story that is not what you thought you knew. This podcast, I hope, has given you a window into an incredible moment in our history and shown that much like today, Tudor England was diverse, it was exciting, and it was full of people who wanted to give their life for the things they believed in. If you're looking for more information about this fantastic world, I really want to recommend Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors. She's a fantastic author, and this will show you not just the people that we've heard about today, but also a myriad of black British lives in the UK. If you want to see the many faces of Tudor England at the Mary Rose Museum, including those incredible 3D skull reconstructions, it's in Portsmouth until the end of this year. And if you want more episodes from us, please rate and review the series on your podcast app. And while you're at it, search for History UK or Phone Riddell on social media and tweet us with hashtag NotWhatYouThought. We'd love to hear your suggestions for topics for future episodes. If it's left up to me, we'll end up with a series based solely on the Victorians or the history of sex. And while that sounds great, I'm not sure how happy my producers would be with that. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr. Fern Riddell, 
produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, and our series producer is Sam Pearson. History's Letters of Love in World War II reveals a remarkable account of the Second World War through a series of real-life love letters. Featuring interviews with their family and starring me, Johnny Pitts. And me, Amy Nuttall. This eight-part podcast series tells the brave, tenacious and touching story of Cyril and Olga's war. We found a place to park our tanks, climbed out, just going to start a fire to make a meal when... Phew, bang! Phew, bang! One shell dropped about 20 yards one side of the tank, another about the same the other side. I'm dreaming of those three happy months we spent together at home. How quickly they flew. It'll be like a second honeymoon when we start that life again. Download Letters of Love in World War Two on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.